0: Hello, you're listening to Just Screen It, case studies in creative distribution. I am your host, Colin Stryker, and I am not an expert in creative or self-distribution. I'm an independent filmmaker working towards making my first narrative feature, uh, a horror film entitled The Grove. So as I've been contemplating my own eventual distribution strategy, I've become sort of fascinated with the notion of self-distribution, but I found that it's really hard with all the information that's out there to uh, really get a good idea of how it's worked for people. So I decided to start this podcast to help capture some of the experiences of those who have already been through it. Uh, whether successful or otherwise, and from those experiences, help both listeners and myself better understand this really complex, crazy landscape of independent film distribution today. So each week, I'll be bringing on a filmmaker who has self-distributed or used creative or non-traditional methods to distribute their film. Uh, My hope is that future filmmakers can take the knowledge gleaned from this show and use it to make their own decisions on how to best distribute their films. All right, welcome to another episode of Just Screen It Case Studies in Creative Distribution. Uh, Today, it's my pleasure to bring you my conversation with Andy Palmer. Uh, Andy is a fellow Portlander who makes a living as a reality TV editor, but he has several independent horror films under his belt, including a fun, campy, but not quite over the top campy slasher film called The Funhouse Massacre. I definitely recommend you all check that one out. Uh, Now, to be clear, Andy has gone with a distributor for all of his films, but he has so much great experience getting his movies out to online platforms that I think is very much applicable to the self-distribution experience. And as I think we're learning on this show, the line isn't always so clear cut. I mean, even with a lot of online distributors, there's a lot left for the filmmaker to do on their own. And I think Andy definitely embodies that DIY ethic that is so important to independent filmmakers today, whether self-distributing or otherwise. Uh, there's so much good stuff here for filmmakers to take away. I want to get right to it. So without further delay, here is my interview with Andy Palmer.
1: So I, uh, I grew up wanting to be an actor. Uh, I uh, I thought that was like uh, my pathway, and um, got to college, declared as a theater major, and then realized like that I came from a town of like 11 people, so I was like, and I was the best actor in a town of 11 people, and started reading, meeting real actors, and was like, holy, sh- can I swear? I just want to know. No problem. Uh, great. <laughs> Go for it. And I was like, holy shit, this is not this is not for me. But I love storytelling uh, and stuff like that, and so I started to segue more to like starting to write. And then um, I was in college when, you know, mini DV and stuff like that started to come about. So this idea that like I could buy a camera for a couple grand and I could like use Firewire to kick it into a computer and edit it myself and stuff like that was like, you know, this was a whole new thing. So this is probably
0: early 2000s, something like that. Exactly,
1: yeah, Yeah. 2000, 2001, yep. And so uh, my senior year in college, uh, I bought a camera, my my roommate who was really into film bought a computer with a 20 gig hard drive. We were we were kinks. I mean, it was like, how will we ever fill up a 20 gig hard drive, right? <laughs> yep. And um, now I have like 128 in my phone, but whatever. Yeah, right. Um, and, and better and better editing software in my phone actually. Um, yep, no doubt. And so we made a short film and then we literally shot it like every weekend, the short film over the scenes over and over again, just kind of like fumbling our way through things. And as i started to like edit it i was like man if i knew how to edit well Mm. i would i could cut this filming stuff you know way down and so uh i started really focused on editing i went to a school for editing up here in portland it was called the the avid feature film school it Mm. was amazing it was like this it was like a three-month course and we we learned how to cut everything sitcoms and plays and music videos and films and stuff like that and it was it was awesome and uh, and that's where I fell in love with Portland. And then uh, but the, the the teacher there was like the first day he he had, he had been an editor in LA for like 25 years and he goes, Two things, but he has a very gruff voice. He had smoked <laughs> like clearly smoked so many cigarettes. Uh, day. Yeah, you got lot of those things. voices. Yeah, yeah. Just that great gravelly voice. And he goes, yeah. First of all, you're gonna fall in love with Portland. Huh? Second of all, there's no jobs up here for editing, so don't fall in love with Portland. <laughs> yeah. And so um, so I moved down to LA. With the intention of always wanting to be a filmmaker, yeah. but editing kind of being that segue, and that's what I started to do. I started to cut. I I came up in uh, in non scripted and reality and documentary stuff, and then at the same time was writing and trying to get projects off the ground. And then finally in 2013, got to direct my first feature. For we did it for like fifty thousand dollars all in. Yeah. Uh, shot it in my hometown in Colorado, and oh, wow. um, we literally took. Everybody and we all drove out, like we all like literally migrated out. Half the cast slept in the picture house, half the yeah. cast slept in like a rental house down the street. Right. And it was, it was like as fun as you can imagine, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. and as stressful. Yeah. Uh, every night was like this brainstorming session of like, oh, how are we going to get, how are we going to get through tomorrow, you know, because everything yeah. is just kind of like thrown at you and, you know, uh and stuff like that. So it was, it was a lot of fun um and then it started to snowball i just started i was able to like you know that movie did okay and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll talk about distribution because that's the that's sure. a real that's a real great example of how much distribution has changed since i made that film versus like you know movies i'm making now
0: yeah for sure we'll definitely get um, back to
1: that can i just ask you yeah. real
0: quick what was the style of the movie
1: what kind of movie was it sure um, it was called uh it was called find me and it sure. was a uh, paranormal thriller a haunted house movie so you know almost all the movie took place in one house uh you know we were you know doing everything for you know the budget that we could afford and stuff like that yeah it was fun it was i i grew up like i'm a comedy guy i love i i I got into film because i wanted to do comedies and stuff like that but my partner my producing partner and i had produced a movie before find me a feature for a friend of ours that was like this sci-fi romance and it was like very difficult to sell it was a great movie but it was very difficult to sell uh without names and stuff like that and so we were like listen genre stuff it sells better you don't need names and stuff like that so we started kind of really angling for more you know uh you know scary movies and and horror movies and stuff like that and that's where i came up so and then yeah and then so i i just started making other films and we had this calling card uh the first one actually made it went into the black it made money uh and we 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 started kind of making bigger and bigger films um and and when you say when you say we who do you mean so i have a producing partner his name is warner davis and we've done all of our films together he's also produced a a bunch more films uh without me but he always kind of he always keeps me around i get to edit a lot of his films and got it and stuff like that too but yeah he's uh he's the he's definitely the like the business brains of the the operation and and, then you know he lets me sit behind the camera and (laughs) make make those decisions and stuff like that so it's a good Good partnership in that regard
0: yeah. always good to be able to split those roles
1: instead of 100 you know, a lot of my filmmakers mind is are not doing yeah. both so yeah yeah i can't you know he does things that like dealing with agents dealing with schedules you know and now as we get into bigger films union stuff and all that stuff it's like it's hard it's it, there's like there's conflict and stuff like that i'm not a conflict guy so it's like he's able to make like really hard decisions and then you know he lets me do you know not the Directing is an easy thing at all, but it's it's my wheelhouse, you know, and it's, so it's uh, it's definitely good to have those pairings. Yeah, you know?
0: cool. Uh, yeah, so let's uh, let's continue from there. You have this one kind of successful low budget film. You start making more films. If you can just tell us your story uh, up sure. present present day on making those films,
1: just kind of a quick yeah. overview, and then we'll drill down more on on actual distribution experience. Great. So yeah, so we did uh, we did find me, and uh, it did really it did well. Like we. Uh, you know, and it took it took a while, like it wasn't like we didn't make like we didn't get some sort of deal. I and mean, yeah. we 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 sold it to Gravitas Ventures for, you know, no, no advance at all. Right. Um, but Gravitas was, you know, at the time they were like they were the like digital aggregator doing VOD. It was them and FilmBuff were like the two biggest companies and we sent it to both of them. FilmBuff passed. Gravitas picked it up. You know, there was no physical release, no physical DVD mm-hmm. release or anything like that. It was all it was all VOD. Um, But they were very cool and they were very honest in their reporting and stuff like that. Uh, Very, very cool to deal with. And then we uh, did another movie for like twice the budget. It was like $150,000 called Badlands of Cain" that one of the actresses from Find Me had written. Mm -hmm. And it was like a very kind of I I did it as like this very kind of Hitchcockian, like Hitchcock Twilight Zone sort of thriller and stuff Mm -hmm. like that you know we had a little bit more budget so our sets and everything got to be a little bit bigger we got paul Soder from super troopers he was like a friend like warner had known him personally and so we were like we have a name now and we got (laughs) like james marshall from from twin peaks and and uh and stuff like that and so we were like oh man now we're on our way right and so we started to send the movie out and again like gravitas was interested in it and we were like hey this is great because we can apply all the success we had with find me And we'll do the exact same thing with with balance of cane, but we have bigger names. Like inevitably this will do better, right? Right. Did not do better. Yeah. Just literally across the board made maybe a quarter of what, find me had made it's a better film it mm-hmm. has bigger names and it made it made less money uh so I why do you that think that has, is
0: not not to get, you know get too much into the weeds but why do you think yeah. that is exactly
1: what was different was it was it a function of the film was it a function of the landscape for films i think i think the two things it was the landscape had changed in in a year in two years since we had released find me to releasing Badlands of cane the, everything had changed uh you know by this time blockbuster and all that stuff like physical was basically on its way out mm-hmm. uh we were just starting to see uh some of the like i think netflix was doing streaming that was pretty much about it but there were just so many more movies so it was like all of a sudden it was much more competitive and i think also like the thing that i can't minimize and we'll go into some of the projects that we've also just distributed not made ourselves I cannot minimize how important key art is mm-hmm. to a film, especially a film with no names. And it's not like there's a formula to be like, this will work and this won't work. Yeah. There's just something that catches people's eyes. And I made the poster for Find Me Myself. I literally took a still image. The, the whole thing was like the ghost would like, you. she would pop around the corner and she would have her hands over her eyes like this. Mm-hmm. And so I literally took that image and I took this beautiful shot that we had of the house uh, with all the trees kind of like creeping around it and I laid it on the bottom and then I flipped it and I laid it on the top so they were just like sandwiched and it just looked cool mm. and Badlands of Kane we wanted to do this very like it was like this kind of Hitchcock movie so we went and had this like retro like hand po like you know Drew Struzan's room, like yeah. you know poster made and we spent mm. a good chunk of money on it it's a beautiful poster and I think it was absolutely the wrong thing to uh. do Yeah. Yeah. It just didn't catch people's eye of like, Ooh, what, you know, what is this and stuff like that. Um, and so I think we are in a more competitive market. I think the key art didn't pop and then that movie just, it just died, died on the vine. So, yeah, so that, you know, and that was kind of a big lesson for us is that you can do, you can do all the smart moves, but it really is just like success is just, it's, it's literally hard work meets luck and luck is, a chunk of it, you know, but you know, the movie looked cool. We, you know, we were talking to investors and stuff like that. And then we had, a um, an investor that, that my partner had met, who was like, I love horror comedies. If you guys ever have a horror comedy, send it, you know, send it my way. Cause those are my favorite. I love Tucker and Dale. I love Shaun of the dead and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So, uh, a buddy of mine named Ben Bagley and his wife had written this, uh, horror comedy called the Funhouse massacre. I read it, uh, he sent it to me. I read it, I fell in love with it. I thought it was one of the funniest, goriest, coolest movies I'd ever read. I sent it to my partner at like two in the morning because that's when I finished it. And I was like, dude, this is the one, this is the movie. Yeah. He read it the next day and he goes, this is pretty good. He sent it to the investor thinking like, he's gonna be like, yeah, what else do you have? Blah, 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 blah. And literally two days later, the guy was like, this is awesome, let's do this wow. movie. And we were like, funded. I mean, it was, that never happens. Wow. Usually wow. you're piecemealing stuff. And this was a for us, all the money in the world. We literally jumped from a hundred and fifty thousand dollar budget to a one million dollar budget, and we were like, wow. "We we have totally <laughs> arrived." So we yeah. went and shot Funhouse Massacre in uh, in Youngstown, Ohio, at this place called Land of Illusion, which is this huge haunted house. They yeah. have like five haunted houses on the property. This place was amazing. We got great cast. We had Robert England and Clint Howard, like all these great genre guys, Jerry Burns, yeah. uh, Scotty Thompson, and stuff like that. And we just had an absolute blast making this crazy, funny slasher movie. Yeah. Um, and then we got a very hard lesson in in expectations. Is that so? The investor was like, "Okay, the movie takes place on Halloween. We need to release this on Halloween." And we we shot it in like March, and then they wanted to basically release it in theaters like by that, that next Halloween. Yeah. So we we rushed through post, got the movie done didn't really have time to submit it to a lot of festivals and stuff like that and when we were submitting it to festivals we were still in like the rough cut phase and stuff like that so the bigger festivals fantasia and you know Toronto after dark all these like you know south by southwest and stuff like that we were south by southwest we missed fantasia we didn't get accepted because we sent them a rough cut and then because we were just pushing for this this halloween thing right so we partnered we we went to amc independent and amc independent agreed to like basically release it in theaters we still didn't have like any sort of home video release but we 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 were going up against um scout's guide to the zombie apocalypse like against in halloween so we were like let's not do that that's silly like why would we go head to head against a theatrical you know a theatrical horror comedy you know yeah yeah. so then we there was november had a friday the 13th so we're like that's perfect we'll release on friday the 13th And so we did that and we, you know, we had a decent marketing budget and there was, there was really good buzz. It was like the the theater, theatrically it did okay. And people were talking about it and we were like, we had this buzz. And then all of a sudden we got into the Telluride horror show and we were like, great. And Telluride loved it. Uh, And we were like, boom, boom, boom. And then we had zero home video release. We, nobody had taken it. And then we had to basically start the process all over again. so we eventually settled uh i say settled but we got picked up by shout factory who gave us a you know it was a decent advance it wasn't amazing Uh, but shout factory were like this is perfect they release all these retro films they're gonna do all this cool stuff with it and they and they were great shout was they were cool to deal with except for the fact they're like we picked this up now in december january we can't release this till june we don't have a window to release this till Mm -hmm. june Mm -hmm. and by that time November, it comes out in theaters by June. Who the fuck are we?
0: Yeah. You know, yeah.
1: Yeah. and now you're starting all over again. We've blown our entire marketing budget on the theatrical. We don't have any money left. And so then the movie comes out in June and it's just, it just kind of did what it did. Now on the flip side for a film of its size and stuff like that, it was a, it was a big hit for Shout Factory. Like it, we sold Redbox, which was really hard, is really hard to get into. Yeah. And Redbox is like, we, when we'll talk about like the, you know, when you start talking about like physical distribution and like returns versus you know the thing about DVDs when you go to Walmart and you go to Target and stuff like that they may Walmart may order twenty thousand units mm-hmm. but th- anything that gets returned just gets wiped out of your money so wow. they'll the, if, if Walmart sells five thousand and there's fifteen thousand discs that they haven't sold they send them back to the distributor and the distributor says well we can't recoup this money and it comes off your end yeah and so you get boned. Um, but the thing about Redbox is, Redbox is a hard offer because they don't do, they don't do, uh, uh, they just order the disc, they don't order the key art, they don't order the boxes and stuff like uh, that. So it is like whatever they order, they pay for it and then they don't, they don't do returns. And so it was a nice chunk of money. Um, we got a Showtime deal. It was on Showtime and then worldwide, it did really, it was on Netflix. You know, the only place we didn't really get it was Netflix here, but it was in Netflix all over the world. Hmm. And then for us, you know, it did okay. We, you know, we we're still seeing some money come back from it now, seven years later, eight Mm -hmm. years later now. Mm -hmm. um, And we're eking towards getting Mm -hmm. to the black. I don't think we'll ever quite get to that level. But it it became a bit of a cult favorite Mm -hmm. on Halloween, like the social media kicks up. I've had people like email me. They have like dull face tattoos. I had one woman that had wrapped her car in horror movies and Rocco the clown was on there and (laughs) stuff like that and so it became like this fun little cold thing and it still has a little bit of a life um but had we not felt pressure from our 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 investor to come out on Halloween we could have had a much more successful festival run then we could have parred that with releasing in home video and i think the movie would have just they would have blown up
0: yeah so a couple of questions a so, couple of questions on that uh first of all i'm just curious like did your investor ever kind of see the light on that and be like oh that was my bad that was my mistake or you know, did that just you know i don't kind think of so. die yeah okay yeah yeah i that's, don't think so
1: that's you too know? bad right I yeah i think that you know in their mind it was like oh it's a no-brainer and 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 and, and in so many filmmakers mind the idea of releasing on halloween seems like a no-brainer because everybody's yeah. watching scary movies but that's it's the worst time to release an indie horror movie yeah. because you're competing against all the streamers all yep. the theater stuff It's the worst time. Don't release on Halloween. Don't do it. Don't even go close. We should have, like I said, if we would have done an AMC independent run in March, April, and then released on home video May, June, like I said, our Funhouse Massacre would have been that movie that just, it just, you know, it becomes a Shaun of the Dead. It becomes a Tucker and Dale, something Mm -hmm. that like really kind of like gets that real cult status. So,
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. A cautionary tale.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think for sure, like on horror movies, especially now we're kind of in this little golden age of horror movies where they just like yeah. quality horror movies just kind of keep coming out and out and out. People are yeah. used to, used to those being all times of the year. Like, you know, that's, it's not, it's not like they need them all to be clustered around Halloween or they're just no. not, you know, there, it's just like, we're just, we're in a, there's just a, it's like, there's just a streamline of these great horror movies that are coming out. So yeah. Uh, you I know, agree. yeah. And so the other question I had about that experience was, did you think about hiring a, a, you know, sort of a producer's rep or a sales agent or something like that? Something with like sort of a a level of experience and strategizing that they might have brought
1: to that distribution strategy that might've helped you? Possibly. Yeah. yeah. We had had like, so the first movie that we had done that I talked about, the sci-fi romance movie that Warner and I had produced for my buddy, Derek Liu, who directed it, we had brought on a sales rep for that film. Cause Mm -hmm. that felt like, that we get the you know sales reps give you this great pitch oh we have we have the connects to all the people that you can't get to directly so we can pitch all the studios we can we have oh we have this deal in latin america we have this deal where you know if you have an actor that's on a fox show we can guarantee you a seventy thousand dollar advance. you know it was all these like these weird scenarios and when we were You know starting out we were like that sounds amazing you know Mm -hmm. and then we and then you and then we had to pay them up front yeah so we had to pay five thousand dollars for the sales rep now obviously that came out of like basically they when the movie started to sell and stuff like that they would like give that back to us until that five thousand was recouped and then and then it would start to kind of the split again and stuff like that right but at the end of the day like they sold it to some company that's not even around anymore And it was, and so now we are in the whole 5,000 and we owe a percentage to them and they get to make all the decisions for the film. And it was like, it it was, I don't know. I have a very not trusting relationship with sales agents Mm -hmm. because I just, I always feel the pitch is, is more than the, you know, I think you have to have a film that truly has, and I'll, I'll forward that on. Is it like our last three films we have packaged with an agency? You know mm-hmm. so we did uh so uh, icm did one and gersh has done our last two mm-hmm. so that has uh, that that is basically GER, they act as their sales agent
0: mm-hmm. um
1: but i would i would much rather go with an, a big agency like that that has a little bit more swing than just like an independent sale i just i don't know i personally haven't had good experience and i've never mm-hmm. met anyone that has they always tell you when you sit down with them like I, I remember when we were doing Funhouse Massacre, we were sitting with a sales rep at at, uh, at AFM and the guy was like, yeah, we just did this movie called, uh, what was it? It was called like, it was like a, a Shaun of the Dead sort of rip off and stuff like that with like a Latin flair. And they're like, yeah, we just sold that for like 200, you know, like 200 grand or something like that. And I was like, okay, cool. And then it was again, like, it's just like, well, yeah. what, else? and then, you know, you reach out and everybody's like, well... We did okay, you know, and stuff. So, yeah. Right, no, it make, makes sense. And it's like, I think it's like a lot
0: of things in, in the film industry where anybody who stands to make money uh, from immediately presenting themselves as somebody that can... Do well by filmmakers. uh yeah. They're gonna they're gonna milk that for all they're worth. I mean, I'm not. You know, yeah. I don't want to ditch everybody. I'm sure there's good, honorable, ethical you know agents and all kinds of things. I'm sure it runs the whole gamut. But there's just you know everybody in the, in, the, in the industry is just incentivized to make money to prey on independent filmmakers and make what they yeah. can out of them. And then the filmmakers are always the last to see any if, if if any money comes in for their projects, they're always the last to see any money come back. And it's just that's the 100%. way the system is set up, uh, unfortunately. And yeah. Yeah. That, you know that's yeah. sort of will, will be one of the themes of this podcast i'm sure is is kind of just yeah. parsing that and figuring out how to how to independent filmmakers break through that going forward and I, you know it seems like they've been trying to do it for 50 years so i don't know yeah. you know
1: yeah no know. and i and i don't and i don't have the answer i really yeah. don't because yeah. um the market is incredibly fickle it's just so weird i mean i'll again yeah. like i i have i i will say that like i make a living, working in television, I get to direct films. Like I have, I, there's nothing more that I could ask for. Yeah. You know, I I have I have really achieved what I set out to achieve and stuff like that. I will say that of my in my film career, I have more cautionary tales than I do successes. I have like don't do what I did uh, out of the you know out of the seven films I've directed. I I'm you know more of my stories are like don't even if we tried to play it so smart and all these things. It just, again, it's hard work and luck, and we've never quite gotten that luck luck train to like hit at the exactly right time, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. I am curious, so so what do you do to make a living, uh, if you don't mind my asking? Sure. So
1: uh, as I talked about, I I came up in editing, and so uh, that is like, that is really what I do to, you know, to pay all my bills. So I edit a ton of uh, reality television, documentary stuff, um, so that's the, that's the day to day, which is why you know, we lived in LA for 20 years when the pandemic happened, all of my editing work went remote. And I so, see. uh, we were all able to still keep working. I mean, it's, I mean, technology, like I talked about, it's amazing how much it's changed. Like, it's not like the company had to send me hard drives. Literally what I do when I like the show I'm working on right now, the company is, is based in LA and in New York. Uh, i come into my home office that you guys see here every day i sit down i plug into an avid at the la place that's hooked up to the server yeah. and i edit like i'm just it's like i'm working off my local system it's that fast yeah. it's that response responsive and then it's not like I never have to call an name be like oh i didn't get this file can you send me another hard drive or can you we transfer me this or that I'm literally on the network if something goes wrong they fix it you know yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. it's and that's incredible. awesome.
0: Yeah. So thanks for filling me in on that aspect of it because I'm just trying to get a, a better picture. So the films that you're making are definitely on the side. They're not really major income
1: generating or living generating yeah. kinds of projects. Uh, the, I point. mean, yeah. So Fawnhouse Massacre was the first movie that I took a paycheck on. It was my it was my third feature, and it was the first movie that I took a paycheck on. But if you take that paycheck over the amount of time that I spent Editing, distribution, deliverables, all that kind of stuff. Holy bay, you know, holy right. cow. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and then Camp Coldbrook, again, made a little paycheck. And then the last movie that I have coming out in September was really the first movie that, like, I made a paycheck where I, I could have been like, okay, for a year and a half, I would not have to take another job. Like, I, I made an actual real paycheck for, you know, for the re-education of Molly Singer where I could, like you know, I I did because I like editing and I like working, but, but it was, it was a situation where I could have used that as income for a year and a half or so.
0: Yeah. And it may be that there are some stories where you don't necessarily have to have a big breakout success, but you can just kind of work your way up into higher and higher budget films where you can start taking a salary instead of just, you know, not doing it all unpaid and, and, you know, make a, modest living or something or part of a modest living you know that is a success story in and of itself i think to a certain extent you know just to be able to get yourself in a position where you're making something where you're you're getting paid something to make movies you know
1: yeah Um, i i totally agree i think that like i think that filmmakers put a lot of pressure on themselves because we idolize the filmmakers that had that success very early on i i was you know a 90s and 2000s kid so my idols were kevin smith edward burns Steven Soderbergh, um, you know, uh, all those guys that like, I was excited, Richard Linklater, all those guys I was excited about. And they all made this movie in their twenties that blew up. And then they, yeah. they, you know, they were in, they were in the system. Right. Right. Uh, and you know, the Tarantinos and stuff like that, that make these brilliant movies, Robert Rodriguez in their twenties and stuff like that. And there's all this pressure as a young filmmaker to be like, I need to be that guy, you know? uh i and 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 what i come to learn is that those guys are michael jordan those guys are lebron james they are geniuses Mm -hmm. like they are geniuses and they were way above my level as as a storyteller and stuff like that so i i I had to come to this realization as like as a filmmaker that like for every michael jordan they needed horace grant and if i'm the horace grant of you know like you know if i'm the bill lamb you know the bill Lambier of of filmmaking where i grind my way up until i'm just kind of you know, making a living and getting to work on projects that I'm excited about, so be it. And I actually feel that I see those filmmakers that hit it when they were young and now they're in their forties and fifties and everything seems super boring. You know, I remember Steven Soderbergh before he had this sort of like, while he was getting kind of more chewed up in that Hollywood machine, before he got to where he is now, where he really gets to make the movies he wants, on the streamers and there's no pressure he gets full creative control he was like i don't i'm so bored i'm just gonna retire from filmmaking if i have to get in one more location bus i'm gonna you know like you know scouting locations i'm gonna murder somebody and i think that there's something to be said for every single time i get to make a film that's bigger and now i'm in my 40s i appreciate it way more than if i would have made it in my 20s yeah. if i would have hit it in my 20s i had been like this is the way life is you know yep. and 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 i never would have appreciated every single incremental climb you know that you kind of go yeah, I think that's
0: a terrific observation, and and something you know really good to take away from this conversation. which just, just just the notion of if you're in filmmaking, there should be a joy just in making films, and just totally. in doing whatever it takes to make films. It doesn't matter how hard you have to work, how little money make you make at it. Like if you're expecting things to be given to you in filmmaking, you're you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Yeah. So just being able to just revel in that process, I think, is in and of itself, a joy that you have to be able to have, or you shouldn't be doing it, you know? Um, totally, opinion, hey, totally. So. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, so I agree. yeah, so let's let's go back. Um, we'll, we'll kind of talk a little bit more specifically about distribution. I know that you had some things you wanted to say about your fir- first film, Find Me. Um, yes, yeah. I got the title correct, right? Find Me. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's yeah let's go back and, and talk a little bit more about what the distribution experience was like for that film, and then we'll you know kind of work our way forwards again and, and get really right. into the distribution experience. Yeah. So you said you, you said you, you this was about a fifty thousand dollar movie. I think was that money that came thousand of- all in. Yeah. Was that out of your own pocket? Was that out of your
1: own 13, pocket? 13,000 of it. Okay. Yeah, 13,000 of it. So uh, the first 40,000 was uh, my good friends, Jason Young and Michael Stott. I grew up with Michael uh, from the time I was knee-high to a duck, and um, we're we're still best dear friends to this day. Uh, they had owned a plumbing company in my hometown, and it was very successful, but they're both like they're big movie fans and stuff like that. And literally, I was in a grocery store one night, And Michael called me up with Jason on the phone and he goes, hey, man, uh, if we gave you 40 grand to make a movie, could you make a movie? And I was like, hell yeah, I can make You know, like I was like, (laughs) oh, my God, of course I can make a movie for 40 grand. And that was really the conversation. You know, they knew that I wanted to do this. You know, they were Michael and I had written screenplays when we were younger together and stuff like that and you know they had this company that was doing very well and they just they had this income that they were like hey we can gamble on this so we all went out to colorado and literally mike and jason hooked it up they found this great this beautiful like ranch house that was like it was for sale but nobody was living there at the time uh-huh. michael rented us a house down the street that we, the crew could stay at and we literally just all huddled together we all lived together and we made this little haunted house movie so i paid for most of post, and again okay. that was through You know, I made a decent living editing. My wife and I were just married. We don't have any, you know, we don't have any kids. And so I had income that I could kick. You know, it cost me about $13,000 to get it all through post. Cause the one thing that, you know you can edit for free and that's fine. There's the the one hard cost that will never go away. And it does not matter if you're doing a $10 movie or a million dollar movie deliverables yep when you sign with a distribution company or you distribute yourself you get this massive list of we need a b c we need and O insurance we need the, the movie file in this format we need a 5-1 mix we need all these things it's a hard cost it never goes away and it's you know maybe you can get away with doing it for five grand it's realistically it's 10 10 or 15 grand you know right so yeah again so we started sending it out we got picked up on the international side by this company called worldwide film.
0: Yeah. Did you play festivals uh, so at all? Gonna, no, no, no. Okay. No. So how I, did you I don't even
1: think we, I don't even think we submitted to festivals for find okay. me because we, we were just of like of the mind that like, again, we kind of took our lessons from, from uh, awaken, which was the sci-fi, the romance, which we had done like a festival run with. Okay. And Warner and I were like, let's just get this to market. Let's just get this out there. You know, right. uh, again, because it's like, festival and i can go into a whole thing about festivals uh but it's like getting into like low end festivals that's not difficult those are honest festivals those are places where you're gonna like you know you, you can kick it and if they they have programmers that watch it and they go oh this is cool and then they'll put it in yep. the big festivals that make a difference where things are acquired your sundance south by southwest these are 95 run by agencies they are 95 like CAA, gersh UTA, they're like, hey, we have this great independent film. We're going to submit it. Yeah. And then there's like five percent of the thousands of movies that are sent in that some programmer goes, I'm going to fight for this one movie. I mean, the chances of getting into Sundance, South by Southwest, TIFF, all the, you know, yeah. all those places are minuscule unless you have representation that's that can get it in front of the eyeballs. Right. So we are like, all right, let's just get this thing to market. So Worldwide Film P- picked it up for international. Uh, we signed a, a horrible deal international for like you know their their expenses were insane. Mm-hmm. I don't think we ever made any money, and I think they went out of business eventually. Yeah, um, that's that's a then, very so,
0: familiar story. I have to say, unfortunately,
1: I would say the biggest the biggest crooks in film are are internationals. I mean, it is yeah. uh, we have we have never had. Oh, I take that back. We 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 have been working with a company lately that that is incredibly honest they're very exciting to work with the money hasn't been amazing but at least they're honest yeah at least there's a check that comes to us every quarter yep. the first three movies I did just okay. gone yep. gone I mean yep. what was even the point yep. um so, so I'm sorry just so how then, did you
0: approach them just uh if I can it was, a contact,
1: it. It was okay. a contact of Warner it was a contact of Warner. yeah yeah so okay. his uh, so his aunt, uh, my Warner's aunt, was the CFO of After Dark Films. I don't know if you remember After Dark. They had done that, kind of, yeah. the the ten films to die for. They did like the big like theatrical marathon right. movies and stuff like that. So she was a CFO. She knew this. She knew the person, and that's kind of how the the hookup started there. Okay. Um, and she was very nice. The lady that owned the company was very nice, and you know she took it to AFM, and we we got to screen at AFM. That was mm-hmm. kind of cool, yeah, uh, and stuff like that, you know. But at the end of the day. Yep. I, I think we signed at $55,000 in, in expenses and, you know, the movie made wow. maybe $57,000 total yep. overseas, you know, yep. so maybe yep. we saw a couple grand. So then I sent it off to, I, t- I, I, I'm a huge fan of Edward Burns. I was like, and at that, that time he had started doing his, going back to his micro budget movies. So he had done, you know, some of these theatrical films and stuff like that. And obviously had gained a lot of success as an actor. Uh, but then he started going back and doing like $50,000 movies. He did a movie called nice guy, Johnny. He did a movie called newlyweds, uh, and he had gone through, um, film buff. And so, and he had kind of like documented his whole process of doing that. And I was like, that's, that's what we need to be doing. Mm -hmm. So I went out to film buff. I went out to gravitas and and they just have open submission. You know, you can just submit online film buff passed. They were much more artsy. They like documentaries. But Gravitas got back to us and said, Yeah, this is cool. We like this. And their terms were very simple. Their expenses were very low. And we were like, Great. So we signed with Gravitas. And after the first quarter, we got our first quarter, we got a check for like $9,000. And, you know, and then that was all like iTunes and Google Play. We were like, Finally, he did like really well for whatever reason on Google Play and PlayStation Network. Like it wow. just for whatever reason people saw the key art and were like, hey, that looks cool. Yeah, were they doing any so, marketing? Did they, were they putting any nothing, marketing muscle nothing. behind this? We all? were we just random Facebook ads. Yeah. Yes, it was wow. just, again, I think it was just, ooh, yeah. that's cool key art. I like yeah. haunted house movies. People, you know, people took a little bit of a risk. Yeah. So we got about like a $9,000 check. Then the second quarter, you know, eh, eh, we started to kind of eke. It would be like five, yeah. six, $7,000. And then Amazon prime and who it got picked up on Amazon prime and Hulu for free. And we were like, in our minds, like, well, these are ad based. Amazon is not ad based. Amazon was per it's per hour watched, you know, or per minute watched, which is like at the time was excellent. And now is hot garbage. (laughs) So yeah. So then, so then it goes on prime and then it goes on Hulu and Hulu at the time was ad based, you know, that, that was, that was at every time, you know, the longer that somebody watched your movie, the more you got paid on the back end for the commercials. Right. Mm-hmm. And so those come through and it was like a quarter. And then the second quarter, we got a check for like 20 some thousand dollars. And we were wow. like, Whoa, like wow. what the heck, you know? Yeah. And for the next couple quarters, Amazon prime and Hulu, it was 20,000. It was 18,000. It was like, we got like money. And I was like, Oh my God, this is great. Wow. That movie yeah. finally goes into the black literally because of Amazon prime and Hulu. That was yeah. it. Those two put them put the movie in the black. I think overall, find me probably made north of a hundred, you know, a hundred thousand dollars on a 50, you know, on a fifty-three thousand dollar budget. We were like, yeah. this is the way. That's There's awesome. no names in this movie, you know, and yeah. stuff like that. You know, it it looks very much its budget. And so we were like, okay, well, we can repeat this. And so we took that success and then we did Badlands of Kane, right? And literally tale of two movies. Badlands of Cain comes out, Gravitas Ventures, same thing. And the first quarter was like eleven hundred bucks. And then every quarter after that was like, and even Amazon and then by that time Hulu had stopped doing ad based revenue and they were doing a flat buyout. And so they Hulu went from paying us, you know, probably 50, 60 grand for find me in ad revenue to flat out buying Badlands of Cain for eighteen hundred dollars.
0: Yep. Yep. And then they so,
1: kept it in propriety forever.
0: Yeah. So this is about when? 2014. 2014. Yeah, so it seems to me like that is really right about the time where you know there was this kind of window where streaming became a thing, and and it wasn't it wasn't such like it still had this I think kind of um, video on demand this remnant of the video on demand sort of reputation where it was kind of considered a dumping ground, right? If you didn't get theatrical and stuff like that. So there was, I think this window where you could get in and you could have films that weren't totally flooded by all of the other films that were on these platforms and you could actually get them seen. And then I think like, as, as more and more, as streaming became more and more of a viable thing, and it was considered more and more of a valid way to actually watch a movie. Uh, and also, I think the technology costs for making movies came down. You had yeah. a lot more movies being made and a lot more movies getting put on these platforms,
1: and it became a lot yes. more competitive. Would, that, would you agree totally. with that assessment? 100%. Yeah. And the platforms got, gre- in my opinion, got greedier and greedier because mm-hmm. it became a thing where it was like, like, Hulu could have just kept the ad-based revenue. They still run commercials. Right. But they figured out that they don't have to. They mm-hmm. can just acquire this movie for fifteen hundred dollars, and and gravitas is going to give it to them. And now they can make you know so much money in ad revenue, and they only had to pay fifteen hundred dollars for the movie. And Amazon started whittling down their payment because they, you know, like I said, they pay per minute of of your movie watch. Funhouse Massacre. I remember talking to uh, to Shout Factory. Funhouse Massacre in its first couple quarters on Amazon Prime had over a million minutes a million minutes viewed like the movie is 2 hours long so right you know if it if somebody was paying 99 cents for the movie right
0: yeah. for
1: a million you know for a million minutes we made uh, in those two quarters on that million minutes viewed on Funhouse Massacre on Amazon like 14 grand Yep. And two and three years earlier, I had made triple, quadruple that on Amazon. Like they just started whittling down what they were going to pay per minutes. And then they got to the point where they just started ripping movies off the platform entirely. They would just, if a movie was on Prime, they would just indiscriminately be like, you're off Prime now, have a good day. You know, right. yep. um, um, it was crazy. Yeah.
0: So so since that second one, uh, Badlands of, sorry.
1: Yeah, Badlands of Kane
0: of Kane right uh and then yeah. you made you made several more movies after that before Funhouse massacre is that right no nope, oh, just that. uh so oh, no, I did Badlands of Kane then okay. I did Funhouse yeah then you did Funhouse and actually
1: okay. yeah and right. it's funny Funhouse theatrically came out before Badlands came out on VOD oh, oh
0: interesting uh,
1: because it was like we literally we had literally sold it to Gravitas we went and made Funhouse and because of that compressed like that pressure from our investor to get out by Halloween uh, we actually released Funhouse before Badlands had even come out on oh. DOD yet. Interesting. You know? Okay. So, um, but that was a much different, you know, with Shout. It was a much different thing because Shout has a really good physical media presence, and that's where Funhouse made most of its money. It still made money on DVD. They have they had a good placement with. Best Buy and Walmart, and mm-hmm. obviously the Red Box deal and stuff like that.
0: Right. Okay. So, uh, let me ask you, like, because we've talked about the, your sort of history of making these movies, and I think for everyone, you've you basically ended up finding or getting a distributor of some kind. Would that be an, an yeah. accurate thing to say? Okay. Yes. So, yes. So, yeah. So, so, and I, I don't mean this in in a bad way, but this is you know, this is a podcast about self distribution, about kind of creative yeah. distribution. So, um, what? What would you say is given that you're a filmmaker who has mostly had distribution of one form or another? What lessons do you bring from that into the idea of self-distributing or using, you know, non-traditional yeah. methods of distributing films? How, you know, what what would you carry over into that for listeners who are interested in maybe going down that path?
1: Definitely, I think that for certain budget ranges and stuff like that, that self-distribution is the way to go because since i started making films in 2012 distribution was difficult it, there was a there self-distribution wasn't even a thing in 2012 like that was not a thing you had to go through some sort of aggregator there was no quiver there was no prime direct there was none of these places there was no indie rights there was no none of these like places that, that allow that there was another one that that folded that i can't remember the name of it that came before Quiver, but you know, there. But they they had kind of done a self distribution model, but then they ended up ripping off all their all their filmmakers and stuff like that. But had I to start over again, I hundred percent would self distribute because now it's not difficult to get the movie out there. It's it, you can go through a company called Quiver, you can do Prime Direct. There's a lot more ways to get your movie out there. To me, distribution has become an easy part of the equation because it can you can get it out to eyeballs audience is now the most difficult and that this is the cautionary tale that you're seeing is that like you said so many more movies so many more eyeballs so much more competition than when we started and doing find me and stuff like that so my advice to filmmakers is focus on audience building even more than you're going to focus on distribution you know if i had it to start over again i would and i'm actually going to like start incorporating this on if I go and do the Edward Burns thing, if I go and make like I'm, you know, having just moved to Portland, I'm obsessed with this town. I I just I I love everything about it. And I want to make movies in Portland, mm-hmm. even if I'm just going to go make twenty thousand dollar Eddie Burns rom coms like I'm going to go do it because I just love this town. And so if that's the case, I'm just going to put them out myself. And and what I need to be very savvy as, is as I'm making the movie, I'm documenting it. Every step of the way, I'm putting it on Instagram. I start a YouTube channel where I'm like, "Hey, this is why we're shooting with, you know, we're shooting with these cameras and these lenses because, you know, blah 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 blah. ABC. These are great in low light. You know, I want a retro feel, so I'm using this glass and stuff like that. And start putting out content on YouTube to build up an audience, so that I have. I mean, you, Kevin Smith is the perfect example of this. He could go out and he and he has said it he said if i go and make a four million dollar movie i know that my audience is going to make that budget back i 100 percent know it i'm going to take it on the road i'm going to go do my speaking appearances and i know that if i make a four million dollar movie that movie is going to make money because mm-hmm. i know that's how much i can get out because he has a fervent audience that loves him and they support him and that to me is what a filmmaker needs to to do they need to they need to create an audience of people the duplass brothers did that that is the key find an audience build up fans so that when you release your movie because the releasing is easy you're cutting through all that noise it's not just strangers clicking on the thing and maybe randomly your key art catches and then you get you get the like you know um that's you know i think places like quiver are amazing uh and we we had started to do that so my partner and i would go to these horror conventions and i had so many filmmakers come up to us and be like hey man how'd you get your movie out there how'd you do this? What do you think of this company and stuff like that? And so we were like, man, we should see if we can like help filmmakers just get their film out there. Mm -hmm. And so we started a little offshoot company called dark cuts. That was just genre based that we were going to do like a fun, like VOD run, try to do some physical and stuff like that. Keep it small. But again, we, over the course of a year, got about six films, only one of them really generated money. And, and i i kid you not i think it's because it has just the kick-ass key art it has this great mm-hmm. poster and it's still for that filmmaker making money every quarter and then we have another we have another company that did this sort of anthology film and those guys are just they're hustlers man they they're just going out and making micro budget after micro budget and they live in kentucky and they they they, they you know they they're very like active in their community and the local news supports them and stuff like that Those guys, you know, it's not as much money as our first movie, the wicked one that came out, Mm -hmm. but they still do well, like every quarter, they get a check and stuff like that. But for us to have taken dark cuts to a place where, you know, we could do it as a living or, or, or something like that, we would have had to become gravitas, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, you have to become a 24, where you put a ton of money into marketing and you're really looking for specific movies. Yep. and a ton of money millions of dollars into marketing. Yeah. Yep. Or you become Gravitas or Uncorked or these other companies where it's like they take almost anything in the hopes that of the 100 200 films they release in a year you know ten of them do well for them. And
0: they, and know? they spend very little on each particular movie yeah. because it's yeah. yeah they're just keeping their expenses yeah. as low as they can and totally. hope, hope yeah. for
1: the breakthrough success. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah. we basically were like yeah. all right listen that we kind of we we pulled back we have this, we have these seven movies. We tried, you know, tried to like milk whatever we can out of them to get the filmmakers as much money back as they can. Like we set out to do and we did what we did. I, I mean, I still literally, I'm, I personally talk to all these filmmakers all the time. Um, and that was amazing, but it was just not a sustainable thing for us without, we would have needed a ton of like money to like keep afloat yeah. if, you know. if i can
0: ask what was your what was your typical arrangement with the filmmaker like how much how you know what was the typical so we contract? did
1: uh we did a max we maxed our expenses at 3500 and that was really wow. just that that, that was really yeah it was low yeah uh and that was really just to get the movies on the platforms that's really what it just cost us to get yep. the movies on the platforms to be able to pitch the platforms and then um we did an 80 20 split with the filmmakers so we did we did 20% they did eight they wow. they got 80 it yeah.
0: sounds like a very like you intentionally set out to create a very filmmaker friendly uh that was the whole goal mechanism right yeah, yeah. and I, it's just sad that something like that doesn't work you know uh, or at least you know in your case didn't work i don't know yeah again
1: like i said we it could have worked if we just took on if we were just at every single con every single festival and we were right. just taking in as ton of money movies but then we then you lose that personal contact and i will say this too we had we had a situation pop up and this was sort of the, the camel of of the movies that we took on we had one filmmaker in particular that was incredibly difficult to deal with. And mm-hmm. and filmmakers, there's a there's there's a, a large group of filmmakers that they just know their movie is the the next thing. It's the next hit. And it's gonna make and they had a friend that it made two million dollars and they had a guy that they heard. Yep. It. And so every day you get this call being like, Why didn't I see more money? I'm gonna audit you guys. I'm gonna do this thing. I know that this movie's making tons of money. And we were like, dude, it's not. It's not making money. Yeah. Like do you just want the rights of the film back? Because we we're not making any money on it. If you think you can go do better, go do better. It's like it's fine with us. Wow. You know, like we did not get into this to go steal a bunch of people's money. We got into this because people went and stole all over. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know? yeah. And so again, that. I, I didn't expect, like, I don't, I uh, total naivete because I just want to like, think the best of everybody and we're all going to yeah. be kumbaya. Yeah. But it was like, I was like, oh yeah, no, if I'm not getting paid to do this for a living, I'm not going to feel these 11 phone calls a day from yeah. a filmmaker that thinks his movie, you know, was going to be the next Blair Witch.
0: Yeah, that's too bad. And, and I think that that's, that's sort of a you know, not excusing the filmmaker, but it's a kind of a consequence of that narrative. I think that we were sold back in the nineties yeah. with all of these independent yeah. film, you know, breakout, you know. Which I think, you know, those things still happen. It's not like that era is over necessarily. I, I, I'm no. not sure if it is or not, but it's just so unlikely. It's so, you yes. know, it's like winning winning the lottery to get that kind of thing. Yeah. And filmmakers have to recognize that they they just there's so much beyond. You may even have the greatest film. You you, you probably don't. If you think you do, you probably Probably right. don't but you might that's and true. even then it's, yeah. there's no guarantee of success like you said there's no. a lot of luck involved there's a yeah. lot of uh, you know a lot of hard work involved in getting films you know out there and seen that you know even minus luck it takes a lot of hard work to just do that and uh yeah so filmmakers i think need to recognize that that's my personal take on <laughs> it, it
1: anyway I, you you're you are spot on man it's it's one of those things where we often get that we've been very lucky and i say we it's really mostly warner who has, we have every film that we've done together. He has been able to secure some form of private equity. And what we learned after Funhouse, because we didn't even in Funhouse, we didn't sell them a bag of goods. Like I, when I hate, when I get a pitch deck from a director and a lot of times pitch decks will do like, like movies, you know, like here's my movie and here's Blair Witch. And here's, I know what you did last summer. And here's all these movies that made bazillions of dollars. And your movie's going to do the same. I'm like, just don't put those movies in your pitch deck because you're promising something you cannot deliver yeah. like it's like most likely you're not going to be able to deliver these things but what we realized is that being completely honest with investors is that is the key thing is that when we go to an investor and we're talking about we literally go to them and say there is a very 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 good chance that you will not make your money back. You will see some money back especially now that we're into these kind of like yeah. million dollar budgets. We can go to a state that has a tax incentive great. 20 to 30% of your money is coming back immediately. That is given because we're getting that money back from the state, right? So we're mitigating the risk in that way. You know, here's a percentage that's going to be tax write off for you and then this is what we need to make to have the movie Make money, and now we're selling through the agency, so we're going to get some form of an advance. And it's and listen, advances are not what you you know. For every twenty million dollar acquisition at Sundance, there's you know a movie that costs millions of dollars that gets a two hundred thousand dollar advance. You know, it's not it's not giant, but at least it's money coming back. But what we say to them is that like, there's no more fun way to spend your money than to make a movie. Come to set, hang out with us. It's an incredible experience. Come to the premiere and stuff like that. And like, you want to like find investors that have a good, that make a great living, and have boring jobs. Mm -hmm. And and that's that's kind of like what we've done. Is like, it's like you know, you go to people that are like their, you know, their day to day job might not be their dream job. It might not be the most fun job. But now they get to be involved in something that is super exciting. And it is being on a movie set. I, I will say. It can be some boring it's very monotonous and stuff like that but at the same time it's like the first time you step you step to set and you know there's there's the you know the condors up blasting light through a window and like you know the dolly track is up and all it is very exciting it's very fun and it's something that you can you know tell good stories about and that's that's who you have to go after it's not it's not the investor to be like what's my return on this going to be when am i going to see all my money back because you just don't know it can take years it can take you can you can be that movie that gets into sundance and makes 20 million dollars you can be that it can be that it's just it's you just never know
0: Yep. I really appreciate those words. I couldn't agree more with with that sentiment, and uh, just just the notion of being honest and not, yeah, not not selling them a bill of goods because you don't want to no. contribute to that atmosphere that we already exist in. And there's too many people selling too many bills of goods about filmmaking in this hyper totally. hyper hyper competitive industry that we're in. So, yeah, uh, okay, yeah. so we're we're getting close to the hour mark. I'll let you go soon. Um, I just wanted to yeah. maybe ask a few more kind of kind of looking towards the future. So, two more questions. First, personally, what are you looking to do in the near future uh what are your kind of immediate goals and then second i'll ask you you know what and maybe this is connected but what's your assessment of of where the industry is going and what what do you think the, the landscape is going to look like in five years or ten years you know if you yeah uh, you know, look into your crystal ball but but first let's just start personally what what are your immediate goals for the near term
1: future yeah so um i so i i shot a movie in atlanta not this past summer but the summer before um uh it was my first company my first love come to to uh to life uh it's called the reeducation of molly singer it's like a modern day version of back to school uh i, I had this incredible cast it's brett robertson nico santos uh jamie presley Holland roden ty simpkins who's in the whale right now sierra ramirez from from good trouble who's amazing it was a dream come true this cast was just like great jonathan lipnick he's in it he is a, just a dream we just had so much fun making this movie, so much love went into it. So that so Lionsgate picked that up this last a couple months ago. And so I, I have out, to break in and say
0: congratulations. Months. That's awesome. Oh, Thank you.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're really super cool. excited. Yeah. We're really proud of it. It's a lot of fun. It's very funny. Yeah. So that comes out. And then I've always been a kind of a director. I, I started writing and then I derailed from writing when I started doing these like horror movies because we just had access to scripts. And also I write super, super slow. I'm not a fast writer, but I did finally Sit down uh, with the with the writer of Funhouse Massacre, Ben Bagley. And I wrote a script with him that my dad had, like, literally years ago, been like, you know what you should do? And this is like, my, you know, the, the classic parents, like, you know what movie you should make? But he was like, you should do a movie about bass fishing, like the the competitive bass fishing, like professional bass fishing world. It's hilarious. I watch it on ESPN at night and I'm like, oh, that is interesting. So I pitched that to Warner, who's from South Carolina. He's like, that's the best idea you've ever had. Like, go write that movie. Wow. So, um, so Ben and I wrote a movie called Bite Me, which is literally, it's television. Nega Nights set in the world of professional bass fishing Ah, and so we've been starting to circulate that and I'm hoping that's the movie that I get to follow up Molly Singer with um, awesome on like you know on the bigger canvas and then on the smaller canvas my you know like I just said uh I'm starting to write a script on my own called Rip City Tales and it's literally my Edward Burns love letter Hmm. to Portland where it's just the food carts and the you know all these like things that make Portland Portland and this kind of crazy cast of characters and i literally if i just go make it for 10 grand on iPhones i just want to go do it. so those are kind of my two personal, you know, personal projects right now. Awesome, that sounds great.
0: Yeah. I mean just yeah. to have kind of a big project in the works and 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 then yes. just have something really small that you can just kind of pour your heart and soul into you don't have to invest a lot of money into it uh, or you know not even necessarily that much work into it necessarily uh if you don't want to but just for it to just be this kind of little passion project that you do and who knows
1: i mean that could be your big success you never know uh i will say this is that like when i was thinking about it i was like yes like it totally this easily could just be the thing that catches on for some reason and 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 takes off and like because everything that we've done where we played it smart and we've done it it's never paid off for us anything that we've done where like i'll tell you from funhouse massacre to camp coldbrook camp coldbrook we shot for less money we got a bigger cast with chad michael murray and daniel harris but we made the movie smaller joe dante was our executive producer who's amazing but i would never trade anything because sitting with joe dante in his own home theater watching the rough cut of my movie was the most terrifying and amazing experience in my life in in his theater he literally has gremlins like hanging on the wall and stuff like that it like it was fucking amazing and he is wow. he is an absolute the coolest dude ever. Huh. Um, but we did all these smart things and it made less than Funhouse Massacre. And I'm like, well, I, I know nothing. I yeah. know nothing. That, and so you're not I, alone. Nobody we knows through, anything, yeah. right? I mean, really. Yeah, nobody knows. They anything. don't. I mean, yeah. it was the same thing. Yeah. So, yeah. So, it very well might be, you know. Yeah. The little $10,000 movie I do, could be the one. Who knows? Yeah. It's the best well, on, thing about film. <laughs> well, on that note, I'm going to ask if you can look into your crystal
0: ball, I'm already admitting that nobody knows anything. Uh, yeah. And uh, do you see any anything interesting, any trends in the area of distribution or self-distribution that you see happening uh, over the next five, 10 years that are you know things for people to keep an eye out for?
1: Yeah. I think that there's never been a more exciting time to be a filmmaker and never a scarier time because anybody can go make a movie, but that's also the scary thing is that anybody can go make a movie. The market is still very saturated. and so it's hard to get the value for you know when when we're going out to actors and stuff like that through their agents the the money that they're that they're requesting that we have to secure these actors for that the distributors are going like we need names, we need these names, we need these names, right? And then you get the names, and then you present the film, and they're like, "Good, we're going to give you, you know, a quarter of what you paid, the, you know, for your advance." And we're like, "Okay, how do we? Where do we make up this difference?" So that's, you know, that the market is still very difficult. But I think that I look at all these guys on YouTube. I actually edited a show for um, Mark Rober, who's, you know, he's a he was a NASA engineer. He did the glitter poop bomb thing on YouTube that has five bazillion hits. And now he has an empire and he's creating these like science toys for kids. And he's doing videos in that realm. The show that I did for him was a prank show. This like social awareness prank show for discovery. And he did it because he created an audience. Mm -hmm. And that to me is like that. If I can impart anything and if I can listen to myself is if you're going to be a filmmaker, you also have to learn how to market yourself. So in addition to making your film, you have so many opportunities to get it out, but you got to get people. are fans of yours to like go do it because there's just there's not unless you have a a ton of money to go you know market and saturate the marketplace with trailers and stuff but but that's the thing it's like you're not bound by anything you could go and make a film and release it on youtube and if you have enough eyes that income is real like people make their living on youtube you know and stuff like that so the opportunities are there but it's all about eyeballs all about gaining you know gaining that audience that loves your stuff Great words.
0: Appreciate that. And anything you want listeners to hear about how to get in touch with you if they want, where they can follow you. Sure, you know, uh,
1: I'm, is, like, I, I keep my uh, I keep my socials pretty low key. I don't have Twitter anymore because it got so <laughs> gross. But uh, but director Andy Palmer on on Instagram, and I post okay. you know updates on my films and fun pictures of Portland and stuff like that. <laughs> but uh, you know all my films right now sans molly singer which comes out in september i think they're all free in some way way, shape or form whether it be amazon prime or peacock or screen box or whatever uh so you know give yeah. them a watch i hope you dig it
0: I watched the Funhouse Masquer massacre, uh, on your recommendation and, and really oh, nice. enjoyed it. So I'll, I'll put in. A oh, thank for you. That's a fun schlocky comedy, comedy totally. horror movie. And I mean, schlocky, like I said, in our email, I mean, schlocky in, in the best way possible. It's just, it's just good horror camp fun. So yeah,
1: it is. It we, we, we sat down to, when we sat down to make it, we, uh, Roger, uh, uh Roger Kurtzman did all of our makeup, uh, our Robert Roger. Hi, it's Sunday. Robert Kurtzman did all of our makeup <laughs> okay. and we were sitting at the creature core in, in Ohio, uh, which was amazing. It was this old bowling alley that he converted to a makeup studio, the, his like whole you know thing. He was like, what do you what is the like, what is what do we want to see? And I said, the thing about Funhouse Massacre is it's a fish story. The fish has to be big enough to make it really interesting, mm-hmm. but not so big that people don't believe it. So that's where all yeah, like right. the go. So it's like that's it's right. just schlocky enough to where people are like, all right, this isn't, yeah. you know, this isn't scary movie schlocky, but it's, yeah. you know, and, you know, it's not so grounded.
0: Yeah. I would say you yeah. achieved that balance perfectly. So cool, yeah. Great. Uh, awesome. Okay. Great. Yeah. This was a great conversation. A lot that I'm sure listeners will take away. So I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, oh as yeah. Fun. Anytime. Okay, thank you. Thank I you. appreciate it. All right. Well, that's all for today. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and or review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Then spread the word. Tell your friends because I'm just starting out so I can use all the help I can get to grow the show and reach a wider audience of independent filmmakers and others who just want to try to understand this uh, crazy, crazy world of independent film distribution. Also, uh, I would love to hear your feedback. Positive, negative, whatever. Comments, questions, suggestions. Send them my way. Uh, If you have guests in mind whose experiences you want to hear about, let me know, and I'll do my best to get them on the show. If you know people who have experience with self or creative distribution, please put me in touch. I'm on Twitter at JustScreenIt. My Instagram is JustScreenItPodcast, or you can just email me at JustScreenIt at DarkRosePictures.com. Uh, By the way, darkrosepictures.com is my in-progress website for my feature and my other projects, Uh, but it's not really up just yet, Uh, just a coming soon banner right now, but the full site is coming very, very soon uh, if you want to follow my work. Anyway, that is truly all for now. I have lots more great guests lined up in the coming weeks. I'll be putting an episode up once or twice a week for the foreseeable future, so stay tuned and thanks for listening.